You remember like that time when Al Gore won the election but he wasn't allowed to be president? <laughs> oh man, what a great prank. Yeah, those were the days, weren't they? From Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove, out in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, out in beautiful Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, and maybe on an all-new affiliate, but I can't—I don't know for sure, so we'll find out. We'll give you guys full credit when we know for sure, and also coast-to-coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, streaming live on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling action-packed adventure. Coming up shortly, as that opening joke from Trevor Noah might have suggested, uh, the mathematician, the mathematician who blames himself for George W. Bush's 2000, uh, I had to put this in quotes, victory in the state of Florida. He's still done 15 years later. We just celebrated, if that's the right word, the 15th anniversary of the Supreme Court stealing the election for George W. Bush back in 2000. John Allen Paulos will be joining us to explain why he believes that his op-ed in the New York Times way back when led to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that stopped the recount across the state of Florida in 2000 and consequently led to the presidency, and I guess I have to put that in quotes also, of George W. Bush. Looking forward to that uh, to that conversation, uh, all by way of uh, a nice reminder that, yes, elections have consequences and so does voting. And perhaps even more importantly, so does counting the votes when and where paper ballots are actually available to count, as they were in Florida back in 2000. And those ballots, by the way, were easily countable, no matter what you have heard in the 15 ensuing years since. Oh, we couldn't count them. How do we know if, if they tried to vote for this person or that? Yeah, we knew. It was easy. And by the way, by every conceivable counting standard of those paper ballots in Florida back in 2000, had we uh, you know, included uh, dimpled chads, pregnant chads, swinging chads, that whole thing, had we counted all of the ballots in the state of Florida... Al Gore would have won. 
So, uh, yeah, they were easily countable back in Florida, despite the Republican Party going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court at the time to fight to keep the state from counting the votes of the people. Say that again. What did I say? Well, the, the did Bush, I say it wrong? No, no, no. Oh, I just okay. want to make sure that people understand yeah. that it was the Bush campaign that, that went tried to, the, to stop yeah. the count. Oh, yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're going to hear a lot of people claiming that, oh, you know, Democrat, because we hear this every uh, election, that uh, the Democrats, oh, they love to go to court. They don't want people, you know, they, they don't want to uh, let the election stay, uh, stand as is. They want to go to court to obstruct elections, to win. They will do anything necessary. Well, it was the Republicans back in 2000 who went all the way to the Supreme Court to essentially get them to stop the uh, the hand recount across the state. So uh, and given some of the recent polling now out from Iowa and New Hampshire, we'll get to some of this in a moment. We could have some more very close elections this year with our uh, just like Florida 2000, just like Ohio 2004. Close elections with our ability to actually count the votes in those elections constrained or even impossible in many states, including in South Carolina, the third early voting state where the results there will be 100 percent unverifiable across the state. I should say that's the third for Republicans. Uh, It's the fourth for uh, for Democrats. Uh, As far as early voting states go, uh, those results will be 100 percent unverifiable across the entire state in South Carolina, where they still insult voters despite the problems they've had. They still insult voters there by forcing them to vote on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. In New Hampshire, And particularly in Iowa, the results will be a bit more transparent and overseeable. That's a good thing. Uh, And given the uh, the polling numbers that we now have, it's a very good thing. Iowa in particular, but also uh, potentially uh, concerns about New Hampshire uh, in both cases could be squeakers this year for both Republicans and Democrats. I'll get to that in a moment, but uh, that voice you heard uh, moments ago, that was Desi <laughs> Doyen, our producer here. Yes, thank you. I just had to jump in because I, know you I did. am shocked at how few people remember that yeah. uh, when it came down to the 2000 election, it was the Bush campaign that stopped, the, that tried to stop yep. the votes and succeeded. Oh, yeah, and succeeded, and they will do anything, uh, and they will do it again if they have to, even in favor of uh, Donald Trump. They will do anything they can uh, to win, even if it means uh, invalidating legal votes and legal voters. Uh, but I wanted to uh, very quickly before we get to some of these n- new polling numbers, which are kind of amazing, frankly, on both the Republican and the Democratic side. We talked about uh, some of the polls yesterday that were kind of amazing concerning Bernie Sanders and his electability. Get to some of that in a moment. But uh, first, uh, as we go to air here, uh, Desi Doyen, I bring this up because I know it's of interest to you. I know you'll be delighted about this. Uh, oil. Oil prices are crashing now to $30 a barrel as we go to air. Uh, this is the first time since December of 2003 that oil prices have been so low. Since 2003, 12 years, $30 a barrel. Uh, This is the uh, latest wave of uh, selling, leaving crude oil down 19% this year alone and an incredible 72% plunge 
from crude oil's uh, June 2014 peak of a dollar eight. So, uh, I'm sorry, 108 yeah. uh, per uh, per barrel. I guess we can thank uh, uh, President Gingrich for that because <laughs> he promised to bring gas down to uh, $2.50. Yeah, which is pretty yeah. much what analysts were predicting anyway with the U.S. oil glut, which, you know, and it's it's hilarious because they keep complaining. You know, the oil industry, uh, mm-hmm. the commodities traders keep complaining yeah. that oil has just crashed in price, and yet they don't do anything to stop keep... the glut of production in the United States. Exactly, which is one of the... They can't the, stop themselves. No, they can't. And by the way, the average uh, price of gas has now fallen uh, to a dollar ninety-seven per gallon um, and, and will likely go lower after uh, today's crash uh, of oil prices. But yeah, you're right. They can't help themselves. Uh, here in the U.S., OPEC has something to do with this as well, but here in the U.S., uh, fracking, essentially, shale oil. Yes. Uh, it has made a glut in the market, which is what, you know, Republicans have called, long called for energy independence or whatever they call it. Which, of course, is is uh, is a mythological unicorn. It doesn't actually exist. No? Why no, not? because oil is traded on the global market. Ah. So even though we may right now be producing more than uh, we import, it doesn't matter because it all goes on the global market and we still buy it from overseas. And, of course, you know, whenever people talk about energy independent whenever republicans in any event talk about energy independence they're not really talking about energy independence they're not talking about all of our energy made right here in the good old us of a they're uh, you know they're using it of course to go against uh other countries uh obviously middle eastern countries uh russia and so forth but uh, they don't really mean energy independence they d- over the past what is it, a couple of years now they changed that from uh, U.S. energy independ- independence to North American energy independence. They don't even mean that really either as far as independence goes, but what they're trying to do is include Canada yes. in that. And America's hat, in. essentially. <laughs> America's they're saying, hat. oh, look, it's all North yeah. America. And, of course, they realize that most people aren't listening. But, of course, we, and, of course, on the Green News Report, we listen. We know. Words have meaning. Desi Doyne doesn't miss anything. <laughs> Uh, in addition to the uh, the, fr- uh, sh- uh, the uh, oil shale, the uh, fracking, and the American shale oil boom, uh, also OPEC is in total disarray. Apparently, the uh, Saudi Arabia does not want to uh, decrease production; they want to flood the market. It seems so that it becomes too expensive for the shale oil, for the fracking and so forth, to continue here in the U.S. because they got a glut there. they got a reserve that they can keep pumping and uh, and still have plenty, put the U.S. producers out of business, and then Saudi right. Arabia will be back in business. And that's because shale oil is unconventional oil, which means it costs way more to produce uh, just to get it out of the ground mm-hmm. than, and also to refine it as well than uh, conventional oil, which is what Saudi Arabia has. Saudi Arabia also has billions in cash reserves, and they are playing a very difficult game here. They want to be the last man standing when it comes to delivering oil as the world transitions to renewable energy. So by lowering the price and uh, refusing to allow the OPEC cartel to 
cut production, which would raise the price mm-hmm. because it would uh, constrict supply somewhat. They are basically trying to freeze, like you said, everybody out of the market. And especially it's a good tool for them to use against Iran. Also, uh, yeah, and Iran is, uh, they are now gearing up. They will be, uh, through this agreement with the U.S., they will be able to release a lot more of their oil onto the world market. So that, too, is driving prices down. Uh, trouble with the Chinese uh, uh, economy, the Chinese stock market, which has been crashing over the past week. That is spooking everyone uh, that there won't be the demand. If the economy in China goes down, there won't be the demand for oil uh, worldwide as much, uh, thanks to uh, decreased demand in China. Strength of the U.S. dollar, which would otherwise you would think be a good thing, but that also uh, means that when the dollar gets stronger, oil gets more expensive for overseas buyers. So uh, so there you go. A lot of drivers in the U.S. probably looking at this as a very good thing but uh, for themselves, but not so great for the world and for the climate. Uh, we need to be not burning uh, oil, and the cheaper it gets, the more we tend to burn. Yeah, that's true. And also, it's not really good for U.S. consumers in the long term because it tends to cause people to get into a false sense of security where they start buying SUVs, SUVs. again. Right. And then they start complaining when the oil price skyrockets back up again because, oh, it's so expensive to fill my stupid SUV. Right. Instead I... of taking the opportunity to get a fuel-efficient car, that won't cost them nearly as much when the price of oil fluctuates. So that's one thing. Isn't that just like you? Planning ahead, thinking ahead, instead of thinking in the moment here in the U.S. where that's all that matters. That's short-term opportunistic thinking. What's wrong with me? Uh, Back to uh, some of these politics uh, and these polls here, uh, because some of these are are, are rather amazing. Uh, And some new news about this debate coming up on Thursday. Uh, As I said, we've got some squeakers in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire on both sides of the aisle. I'll get to that in a moment. But in the meantime, seven Republican presidential candidates, just seven, only seven. I can't believe I'm saying only seven. Seven dwarfs, if you will, (laughs) will participate in the Fox Business Network's main debate on Thursday. Uh, now that they have uh, released uh, who has made it to the main debate stage versus the kiddie stage. Uh, but Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky and Reuters calls her former business executive Carly Fiorina. I'll call her failed business executive Carly Fiorina. Neither Fiorina nor Paul qualified for the main debate stage this time. They are bumped down to the kiddie table. Uh, seven candidates uh, that will be on the main debate stage this time around include uh, some guy named Trump, some guy named Cruz, some guy named Mark- Marco Rubio, some guy named Ben Carson. Carson is still in this thing, despite his plunging polling numbers. Governor Chris Christie uh, will be on, on the stage. And uh, Jeb Bush, former Florida governor Jeb Bush. He still is in it. He's still in the running here, sort of. He'll be on the main stage along with Ohio Governor John Kasich. Those are the seven who will appear in the main debate. And down on the kitty table, it would be uh, Fiorina Huckabee, Mike, uh, uh, Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum, and Rand Paul, except... That Rand Paul has said he will not take part in the undercard debate. He is boycotting it because he doesn't think he should be at the kiddie table based on these numbers, based on these polling numbers. I tend to agree, by the way, not about uh, Rand Paul, but about all of them. I don't think anybody should be relegated that way because it does change the way we report on uh, on the contest and the way that uh, uh, voters 
uh, you know, deal with the candidates before any voting has started. I think we ought to let voters decide. That said, uh, some new polls are giving us some idea of where things are, at least in the Democratic, over on the Republican side. Let me hit this first, because yesterday I had hit some of the Democratic numbers, didn't get to the uh, poll numbers. They don't make a lot of sense, frankly, on the Republican side. Well, they make sense, but they are not clear where all of this is headed. Donald Trump, of course, still retains his enormous lead both nationally uh, and in New Hampshire. But one poll now shows uh, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush climbing to second place in New Hampshire. What? Yes. Uh, According to the NH1 News poll, Bush uh, has uh, almost 12 percent support among likely primary voters. That is just ahead of Ohio Governor John Kasich, who has 11.8. That's almost 12 percent, a statistical tie. Donald Trump, of course, in this particular poll, wipes them all out with almost 32 percent of the vote. Meanwhile, New Monmouth poll, which also shows Donald Trump uh, and his commanding lead, has, here we go again, Ohio Governor John Kasich uh, tied for second with Senator Ted Cruz. So uh, Kasich, who? John Kasich, Ohio Governor, is actually uh, having a showing here. Trump is at uh, 32 percent, uh, while Cruz and Kasich are tied at 14 percent. Cruz numbers have jumped up five, uh, five points since the last Monmouth poll in November. Kasich has jumped three points. Rubio uh, was the only other candidate in double digits, although I think he's starting to decline. He earned uh, 12%, so he just had a one-point decline in the margin of errors. The big story here is, remember that guy, Ben Carson, who I kept saying, I don't get it, I don't understand why he's even in this race, much less leading in polls or almost tied with Donald Trump as he was. He's just almost gone. He's almost completely done. He completely plunged. In the in the polling, just like back in 2012, when you had all of these front runners, and then people got an actual look at him and said, uh, "No, thank you." Uh, okay, so that's going on on the Republican side. Basically, uh, this could be a very close contest in both New Hampshire and Republican. Uh, I, I'm sorry, New Hampshire and Iowa, at least for second and third and fourth place. But over on the Democratic side now, yesterday we discussed how two new polls in both New Hampshire and Iowa show. Uh, that both of them show that it is now neck and neck between Sanders, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, despite the media's, you know, long assertions that she is, uh, you know, the presumptive nominee, the presumptive front runners. Uh, but no, this is looking like it's really tight now, at least in uh, in Iowa, potentially in New Hampshire as well. What we talked about yesterday was the fact that Bernie Sanders uh, destroys all of the Republicans uh, that he was matched up against in the head-to-head poll in both New Hampshire and Iowa. Hillary Clinton beat some of them, but Bernie Sanders destroys all of them. So when it comes to the question of the electability and the people who say that Hillary Clinton is more electable than Bernie Sanders, well, the numbers that we have for whatever they are worth this far out— show otherwise as far as electability goes. Now, Sanders, as of a a poll, new poll from Quinnipiac released on Tuesday, Bernie Sanders has now pulled ahead of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in Iowa by a slim 
five-point margin. That is still just about within the uh, within the margin of error, but this is notable because Hillary Clinton had been winning in Iowa for a very long time, whereas Bernie Sanders uh, was ahead in New Hampshire. Now Bernie Sanders is ahead, according to at least this one poll, showing Sanders beating uh, Clinton in uh, in Iowa, forty-nine to forty-four percent. So uh, this new poll, they say, is consistent with a number of recent surveys showing Sanders pulling ahead in Iowa since the fall when Clinton had otherwise mostly led. Uh, So that's going to be a real contest in Iowa. In New Hampshire, it may not even be a contest. Uh, Sanders has now opened up a 14-point lead, according to the Monmouth University poll. 14 points over Clinton in New Hampshire as of uh, as of Tuesday. The poll shows Sanders at 53 percent in New Hampshire compared to Clinton's 39 percent. So that's sort of where we're at as far as that goes um, with Bernie Sanders now winning, at least according to these two polls or several polls now in New Hampshire and in Iowa. Now, this presents a very interesting situation, it seems, for the uh, for the Democrats, because, mm-hmm. you know, when they have to fight against each other, as it appears, it's now becoming a contest before uh, Hillary Clinton could basically present Bernie Sanders as a very nice person, but just not electable. And now she's going to have to actually try to take him down on policy. And it's going to probably get nasty like it did in 2008 when she was trying to defeat Barack Obama. Well, that got nasty, but it got good. It was a really good uh, policy debate uh, that went on and on and on for months. We may now see that here in this uh, in this race. This could come out to be very close. All elections in this matter uh, could come out to be very, very close. And still no one talks about Martin O'Malley. Who? Exactly. The former governor of Maryland, who's also running in the Democrats. Mm, yeah. Name not ringing. Yeah. A bell. And it seems unfortunate that his uh, his opinions and his policies aren't really getting coverage because he could also be a countervailing. Well, maybe idea. we will. We mentioned there's a debate coming up uh, later this week for uh, the Democrat uh, for the Republicans. Uh, there's also a debate coming up for the Democrats. And once again, it's a secret debate hidden over the weekend. Uh, so that uh, the DNC can make sure that nobody actually watches it. We will be watching it, and we will be covering it right here on the broadcast. Speaking of close elections, let's get to a break, and we will come back with the mathematician who blames himself for George W. Bush's 2000, year 2000, quote-unquote, victory in the state of Florida. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Uh-huh, yeah. can count 424 billion for war why can't they count our votes good question and if they can count thousands of bombs and still be buying more why can't they count our votes 
Very good questions. We're not done. Yeah. Very good We're questions indeed. Why can't they count our votes? Why can't they count our votes publicly, transparently, and in a way that we know that they counted them actually accurately as per the voter intent? Welcome back. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, last week, we spoke with Black Box Voting's Bev Harris in the wake of the upcoming primaries and caucuses in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, etc. Uh, we discussed concerns about the e-voting systems used in those states and, frankly, all of the other ones where they are still used across the country, which is... Um, pretty much every state in the union, frankly. We also looked back at some of the recent messes that occurred in some of those early primary states, for example, in Iowa in 2012, when publicly hand-counted paper ballots saved the day in the GOP caucuses after the Republican Party misreported the actual caucus results. Turns out, by the way, if you hadn't heard, Rick Santorum won the Iowa caucuses back in 2012. It wasn't Mitt Romney, after all, <clears throat> as the party had initially declared on election night. We talked about New Hampshire in 2008 after Obama had won the Iowa caucuses that year. And polls showed uh, even same day exit polls showed him winning, winning handily in New Hampshire, only to see the unverified e-voting system in use in New Hampshire declare Hillary Clinton the winner in what folks like Meet the Press's Tim Russert at the time called one of the great political shockers in American history. And we even talked about the inexplicable results of the 2010 Democratic U.S. Senate primary in South Carolina when an unknown Alvin Green, a guy with no job, no campaign website, lived with his father, didn't even own a cell phone, may have been mentally challenged, frankly, he defeated a multi-term state legislator and judge to, uh, quote-unquote, win the nomination uh, for the U.S. Senate that year on the Democratic side. And, of course, he was then trounced in the general election by the otherwise vulnerable Republican incumbent in South Carolina. Um, sadly, with the 2016 presidential primaries and general election uh, now barreling towards us here, almost nothing has changed in all of those states. Um, it's, it's rather remarkable. Uh, there is very little change in the way that they allow voters to vote, many by 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems, and in the way they tabulate votes, almost all by unverified computers, even in states where... They use hand-counted paper ballots. The computers may get the results right. They may get it wrong. Frankly, it's impossible to know unless votes are hand-counted. Um, and that's what we were talking about with uh, Bev Harris of Black Box Voting last week. Now, while we have become known, well-known at bradblog.com and here on the Bradcast for our coverage of election integrity issues and uh, disturbing inaccurate, unverifiable, and often completely unverified election results, uh, as well as the right to vote for all and have votes counted and counted accurately in a way that voters can know they have been counted accurately, the mother of all disturbing elections in modern-day America was perhaps the infamous Bush-Gore race in Florida in the year 2000. Now, there was a lot of problems with that election even before it began. Uh, just to remind you and reset this before I get to my guest, uh, Florida's then-Governor Jeb Bush 
I guess before he added the exclamation uh, mark, uh, he was uh, he approved a totally inaccurate exclusion list before the election began with the names of tens of thousands of voters, uh, the names that sounded like felons, former felons and so forth, but actually weren't necessarily felons or former felons. It's unknown how many voters, most of them minorities, uh, were unable to cast their votes in Florida in 2000 because of that flawed list. On election night in Volusia County, Florida, the paper ballot optical scan systems, hand-marked paper ballots uh, that were made by a company named Global Election Systems, Inc., those systems in Volusia County, Florida, registered negative 16,022 votes for Al Gore. Negative 16,000. Why a voting system would ever allow a negative total for someone's votes? I leave it to you. Um, uh, Ion Sancho, the uh, legendary uh, uh, supervisor of elections from Leon County, Florida, still believes to this day that someone manipulated or hacked or tried to hack that system in Volusia County. Um, Global Election Systems, by the way, was later purchased by a company named Diebold. You may have heard of them. And the fallout from the 2000 election eventually led to the federal Help America Vote Act, or HAVA, which allocated some $4 billion for states around the country to buy machines from, yes, Diebold and other uh, companies uh, that, frankly, were exactly like the ones that failed on election night in Florida in 2000. The thanks we got was we all got to use those systems thereafter. And, of course, uh, there are those who still to this day incorrectly, in my opinion, blame Ralph Nader for his third-party run, even though Al Gore beat George W. Bush in the popular vote nationwide. And as we now know, if they had actually bothered to count the votes in Florida, which they could have, uh, Al Gore would have beat uh, George Bush in both Florida and in the Electoral College. Now, there were another of a number of other problems as well. Uh, there were these seven whistleblowers from the quality control team at the Sequoia Voting Systems Company that supplied the punch card systems to much of the state. They later testified. You can see the interview uh, with Dan Rather, I think exclusively at this point, at bradblog.com, that higher-ups in the company repeatedly forced them to use bad paper on the paper ballots in Miami-Dade that did not line up correctly in the punch card machines. So there was obviously all kinds of problems in 2000, but the real problem is the fact that the Republican Party went all the way to the Supreme Court to keep the ballots from being counted at all across the state of Florida after the state Supreme Court had ordered a full hand recount. Last month, last month was the 15th anniversary of that entire debacle. And now a mathematician from Philadelphia says that, uh, at least according to the headline on his article at Salon, quote, the Bush presidency was my fault. I am so sorry my work stopped the Florida recount. That article is actually an excerpt from his book, A Numerate Life. A mathematician explores the vagaries of life, his own and probably yours. He joins me now, Dr. John Allen Palos is an American professor of mathematics at Temple University in Philadelphia and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Enumeracy, A Mathematician Reads the Newspaper, and his latest, as I said, Enumerate Life, 
A mathematician explores the vagaries of life, his own, and probably yours. Dr. John Allen Paulos, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. That was a a very thorough um, summary of uh, some of the uh, more egregious uh, problems with the American electoral system in recent times. Well, you know, I realized because it was the 15th anniversary of this entire mess, there's a lot of people in our audience who who don't even know what happened, who don't even remember what happened from 2000. And there's actually a lot of people who lived through it, but still don't really know what happened in 2000. Uh, your story and, and your concerns, uh, which I hope to uh, absolve you of, uh, uh, John, here, is, <laughs> you, you need to let it go. I'll explain, but uh, before explaining why uh, why it's all your fault, really, John, uh, let's walk through briefly the, the general legal morass that occurred in the 2000 election leading to your part in all of this. Uh, do you want to do that? The Gore the, uh, requesting the recount? Sure. I mean, as you mentioned, because of the problems with uh, hanging chads, misleading ballots, uh, so-called butterfly ballots, mm-hmm. missing military ballots, a variety of other uh, uh, serious flaws, uh, and the six million votes cast, the, the, the official difference was 500 votes in favor of uh, Bush. Mm-hmm. And uh, were you to flip a coin six million times, uh, there would probably be a greater difference between the number of heads and tails uh, than 500. <laughs> but uh, given all these imponderables, the the, the margin of uh, error was greater than the margin of victory. Well, and, at least... Uh, there, there really was. I mean, if you're going to stick by the formal rules, not uh, what probably should have happened, uh, almost certainly should have happened, which is... Al Gore be uh, uh, awarded the state of Florida. Uh, officially, it was so close that it was essentially a tie. There was no fact of the matter. So as a result, I uh, I recounted this in an uh, op-ed I wrote for the New York Times, and uh, the title uh, kind of summarizes what my point, and that was we're measuring bacteria with a yardstick. <laughs> the, the differences were so fine, if they even existed, uh, one way or the other, that uh, the this very gross electoral system was much too insensitive to really record them. But so uh, fine, I, I made a general point that uh, that point. Well, hang Anyways, on. Be- before the, the before recount was ongoing, Professor the Florida. Uh, Professor, let me let me Florida let me. State Supreme Court said fine that we're we're counting. Well, actually, and that that let me jump in for a second because I want to sure, clarify sure. that point and when that op-ed came up. Now, this was when uh, Al Gore wanted to, he wanted to recount just a couple of counties. That's what the law actually required at that point in Florida, that the candidate uh, specify which counties they wanted to count. The GOP challenged it. They said he was cherry picking. He only wanted to count, you know, to have hand recounts on, uh, or hand counts, because they had all up till then been counted by punch card machines. So hand counts only in states uh, that would favor him. And the Republicans challenged it and went to the state Supreme Court. Uh, They said, no, we don't want you to cherry pick. If you're going to count it all, you have to count the entire state. And that's when you wrote your op-ed in The New York Times about how close that race uh, statistically was. Is that that right Right. in the timeline? Exactly. And I I said uh, there was no objective reality to to the matter, given the situation that was there, the legal situation. And... uh, the Chief Justice of the Florida Supreme Court, Charles Wells, uh, cited me in his dissent from the majority opinion of his own court 
to allow for a manual uh, for the manual recount of the undervote in Florida to continue. And uh, so he he said, no, there, there's no reason for that. He said, uh, uh, well, because of his dissent, uh, the case uh, through uh, all kinds of because of all kinds of illegal maneuvering, mm-hmm. then went to the Supreme Court. Specifically, what he said is, I agree with a quote by John Allen Pauls, professor of mathematics at Temple University, when he wrote that quote, the margin of error in this election is much greater than the margin of victory, no matter who wins. But then he went on to say, because of this, further judicial process will not change this, this self-evident fact and will only result in confusion and disorder and more vituperation. So he stopped the recount. And uh, so in, in that very uh, Strain Pickwickian sense. I'm uh, responsible. <laughs> <laughs> now, he, just to remind folks at the time, and actually, he wasn't he the dissenter in the uh, in the Florida Supreme Court uh, case, or was he the? Yes, he was. He was, but he was the chief justice. Okay, and because um, the the, the and, Supreme uh, Court, the Florida Supreme Court, or actually ended up ordering. They said yes, you can you can recount, but you have to do the entire state. And uh, everyone except for Chief Justice uh, Wells, who quoted you, uh, said, yes, go ahead and recount the entire state. He dissented. And that's when the Republicans then said, well, we're going to go to the Supreme Court to, to stop that. I, am I right about that in that timeline? Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's what happened. And uh, the rest, as uh, we all know, is uh, history. I mean, <laughs> uh, historical counterfactuals like this, had I not written this, this and that, I mean, they're always kind of dubious, and there are a myriad of other factors that, had they been different, would have mm-hmm. led to a different uh, outcome in the election. I mean, one of the most salient, of course, is Jeb Bush without the exclamation point and Catherine Harris with their with their thumbs on the scale. Mm-hmm. But uh, nevertheless, I've always felt a twinge of guilt, I mean, unjustified though it may be, that uh, I, I wrote this op-ed that uh, Judge Wells cited and stopped the recount. Now that was you, but but Judge Wells lost essentially at the state court. But then did the Republicans cite? They cited his opinion. Then when they went to the Supreme Court and got their favorable decision to just call the whole thing off, correct? Right. So, okay. that, so in that sense, I was cited twice. Exactly. Well, you know, I would say. Uh, what what kind of guilt do you feel? Actually, you wrote about this a little bit. I know in, in your in your book, uh, you think that things might have been different had they not been able to rely on your op-ed in their court argument? What, what would have been different? It's, it's conceivable that uh, Wells wouldn't have had a rationale for stopping the, the recount. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I don't in any real sense feel guilt. I mean, uh, uh, we people talk about the butterfly effect in uh, dynamical systems where tiny little differences uh, initial differences lead to huge disparities uh, down the road. So th- this was, in a sense, a-, a case where I was the little butterfly flapping its wings in South America, lead- leading after many intermediate events to a hurricane in New Orleans. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't hold the butterfly responsible. I'm not really responsible, but and I don't really feel guilt, but I, I feel regret. Right. I-, I wish I... In retrospect, obviously, I wish I, I hadn't done that. And, uh, and that, as you as you mentioned, uh, as a moral tiebreaker, I mean, Gore won more, almost half a million more votes nationwide. And uh, at the very least, uh, 
they should have flipped a commemorative coin in Tallahassee, <laughs> and uh, he would have had a 50-50 well, chance. Well, I would say, at the very least, they should have counted the damn ballots. They had them. Oh, yeah. They could we, have that, counted that, them. Just, yeah. I, and, that, you know, that, that's what should have happened. Yeah, and we, you know, we we've seen that. Yes, it's uh, it, it's hard counting that many ballots centrally, you know, sort of all at once. But it it has been done. It was done in the Franken uh, Coleman Senate race up in Minnesota in 2008. Frankly, a model of publicly transparent. Uh, hand-counted uh, paper ballots, a model for the country, the way that was carried out. So it could have been done. It actually was it knowable. It, it was. I mean, you you mentioned uh, various examples. I mean, even the 2004 case in, in Ohio between uh, mm-hmm. Kerry and Bush, I, you know, when people went to bed, Kerry was ahead. He would have carried Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, wake up in the morning, and he's behind. There was some story told, which never seemed all that plausible mm-hmm. and the uh, voting machines were again uh, manufactured by Diebold mm-hmm. and um, it's it's unfortunate that uh, we can't really have confidence at least in close elections and and you know and I think that's the only uh quarrel I guess I have with you here uh speaking with the uh, professor John Allen Palos uh, American professor of mathematics at Temple University uh, I I think that's the only uh, quibble I have is the uh, the idea that the, as you wrote uh, way back in 2000, the margin of error in this election is far greater than the margin of victory, no matter who wins. People have the idea that, uh, yeah, there are inaccuracies that occur in our electoral system. But if we take the time to actually find out how people voted, we can find out how they voted. These things are knowable. We can learn, you know, it, it's, it's not that we have to say, well, it's so close. Let's flip a coin. But we just don't. Yeah, do no, it. I, it's it's not a quibble because I I agree with you. Uh, but uh, given that that wasn't to happen, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was it's still a case that uh, Gore could have uh, could have won. Uh, even given the constraints of the sure. court decision. But anyway. Well, yeah. And have you seen that there were studies and and unfortunately, one of them was published the day in The New York Times, literally the day after 9-11. <laughs> so a lot of people didn't see it buried in The New York Times. But there were studies that were done of all of the votes in the state of Florida in 2000 when they were looked at by uh, journalists, mathematicians, and so forth, they found that Al Gore won by every conceivable counting standard, whether they counted, you know, hanging chads, swinging chads, dimpled chads, pregnant chads. Every time that they actually counted the ballots, Al Gore won. Had you seen, ha- have you seen any of those studies over the years? No, I've seen those. There, there are a couple of scenarios uh, with uh, certain constraints on what's counted and what's not, in which Bush mm-hmm. does squeak by. Right, but, if they uh, counted... Those are less convincing than the, uh, the fuller recounts. Correct. Had they counted only the state, only the counties that Al Gore wanted, George Bush would have won. But had they counted the whole state as uh, George Bush initially wanted, then Al Gore w- would have won. Um, but that, that, that was made rendered impossible by mm-hmm. Catherine Harris, and uh, the Secretary of State in Florida, yep. under the direction of uh, Jeb with an exclamation point to uh, make sure that that uh, didn't happen. They, you know, had a whole panoply of high-priced lawyers. Mm-hmm. And 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 of course, for that we can blame you, uh, Doctor. Uh, the, <laughs> okay. uh, do you have similar concerns? Before I let you go, do you have similar concerns about uh, elections in the future that we'll see another uh, Florida-type situation? Uh, yeah, as you mentioned in your intro, there not much has changed, and uh, 
And especially actually in Florida, I mean, mm-hmm. if uh, Marco Rubio uh, receives a nomination, uh, he's, uh, you know, his home state advantage might be considerable. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know, I don't want to make allegations about what might or might not happen, but uh, nothing really has changed uh, all that much. So it's conce- very conceivable the same thing could happen. And uh, out there, I should note, in uh, in Pennsylvania, where you are, uh, they use across much of the state, including right there in, in Philadelphia, as I recall, 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. So we will never right, know. With, with proprietarial, proprietarial yep. software, so nobody can even know what, what, they, what it did. It's amazing that 15 years later we are still fighting with this uh, same silliness and in many ways have made it much worse. But uh, Dr. John Allen Paulos, I would like to, uh, 15 years later, I would like to absolve you of your sins. Okay. I'm hoping you can let it go, uh, but it is really interesting that the part that you played in, in this uh, whole fine mess and, and greatly appreciate you coming on and talking to us about it today. I, I appreciate it talking to you. Very much enjoyed it. Dr. John Paulos, American professor of, mathmat- of mathematics at Temple University in Philadelphia. Go out and buy his very interesting book, A Numerate Life. A mathematician explores the vagaries of life, his own and probably yours. Uh, thank you, Professor. Great talking to you. Thanks again. I appreciate it. You know, I should say, Desi Doyen, before we go to a, a break, he mentioned the butterfly effect and that yes. could, could be kind of confusing when you're talking about 2000 he was talking about the effect of one person does one thing or a butterfly does one thing on one side of the world has a huge effect what is it flaps a it, butterfly flaps when a butterfly wings. fly yeah. flaps its wings it causes storms in china right uh or uh, around the other side of the world uh just want to clarify for those who do remember 2000 he was not talking about the actual butterfly ballot effect which uh also had a huge effect on that race Explain this was the butterfly first. ballot that was uh where they split the ballot over two separate pages in um uh palm beach uh, county uh, palm beach was, there we it? go yeah palm beach county florida so the people who thought they were voting for al gore ended up voting instead for that year's donald trump guy by the name of patrick buchanan a uh, bunch of Old Jews, actually, down in uh, in Palm Beach, uh, Florida, ended up voting for this uh, very un-Jewish Patrick Buchanan. And those, those votes never went to Al Gore. They went to Patrick Buchanan. Even Buchanan said at the time, yeah, clearly those people were trying to vote for Al Gore on that bad butterfly ballot that was split over two separate Because pages. it was misaligned, it was difficult to read. Just another one of the many problems in that 2000 election, all of which could have been overcome had we actually bothered to count the goddamn ballots. How many times have I had to say that after elections? I'm really hoping I don't have to say it after any election this year. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm going to. Because, yes, as we now know, after that Bush presidency, elections have an effect. Elections matter. Voting matters. And I'm going to re-remind you about why it is that George W. Bush's quote-unquote election mattered in 2000. It matters today still. I'm going to talk about that next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial.
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As long as we're talking about the effect of elections, the effect of elections as long ago as 2000 and how we are still paying that price today. Um, you know, uh, our, our friend Digby, uh, Heather Digby Parton, who will be uh, who will be joining us, I, I think, later this week for oh, the uh, debate coverage of the, whatever the next upcoming debate is, the Republican debate. Uh, she reminded me uh, after this recent test in North Korea of an atomic weapon, uh, North Korea claims it was a hydrogen bomb. Uh, the U.S. says, no, no, it wasn't large enough to be a hydrogen bomb. It was just a regular old atomic weapon. <laughs> nothing Either, to worry about. Yeah, nothing to worry about. Either way, not not good. Uh, but uh, she uh, pointed us uh, back to this Washington Monthly from May 2004. Fred Kaplan, and I want to read you a couple of these uh, paragraphs here just to remind you why we are in the mess that we are in. To underscore once again that elections have consequences and that we are still paying a price for the George W. Bush disaster that some called a two-term presidency. This is uh, Fred Kaplan back at 2004. Remember, this is now we're in the middle of of, of the, the greatest foreign policy disaster ever up to that point, the Iraq War. And amidst that mess... Concerns, a mess that we were in, by the way, because George W. Bush was pretending we had to go into Iraq to stop uh, Saddam Hussein from using WMD, actual WMD. Apparently, he didn't care so much about. So Fred Kaplan writes, um, on October 4, 2002, officials from the U.S. State Department flew to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, and confronted Kim Jong-il's foreign ministry with evidence that Kim had acquired centrifuges for processing highly enriched uranium, which could be used for building nuclear weapons. This was back in 2002. Kim Jong-il, the father of the uh, current North Korea dictator Kim Jong-un, was still in power, was still alive. So the U.S. State Department go out there to confront him about the fact that they've got these uh, centrifuges now that they're going or that they could use to process uranium to build a bomb. To the Americans' surprise, writes Kaplan back in 2004, the North Koreans conceded. They admitted they had it. It was an unsettling revelation coming just as the Bush administration was gearing up for a confrontation with Iraq. This new threat was an imminent processing uranium is a tedious task. Kim Jong-il was almost certainly years away from grinding enough of the stuff to make an atomic bomb. But the North Koreans had another route to nuclear weapons, a stash of radioactive fuel rods taken a decade earlier from its nuclear power plant in Yongbyon. Those rods could be processed into plutonium and from that into A-bombs, not in years, but in months. Thanks to an agreement brokered by the Bill Clinton administration, he writes, the rods were locked into a, in a storage facility under the monitoring of international weapons inspectors. Common sense dictated that whatever it did about the centrifuges, the Bush administration should do everything possible to keep those fuel rods locked up. It was the quickest way for North Korea to get to an actual uh, weapon of mass destruction, an actual atomic bomb that they did not have at the time back in October of 2002, as Fred Kaplan wrote about in 2004. 
Unfortunately, he says, common sense was in short supply. After a few shrill diplomatic exchanges over the uranium, Pyongyang upped the ante. The North Koreans expelled the international inspectors, broke the locks on the fuel rods, loaded them onto a truck, and drove them to a nearby reprocessing facility to be converted into bomb-grade plutonium. The Bush White House stood by and did nothing, Kaplan writes. Why did George W. Bush... His foreign policy avowedly devoted to stopping, quote, rogue regimes from acquiring weapons of mass destruction. Why did he allow one of the world's most uh, dangerous regimes to acquire the makings of the deadliest WMDs of them all? Given the current mayhem and bloodshed in Iraq, Kaplan writes in 2004, it's hard to imagine a decision more ill-conceived than invading that country unilaterally without a plan for the post-war era in Iraq, but the Bush administration's inept diplomacy toward North Korea might well have graver consequences, he said in 2004. President Bush made the case for war in Iraq on the premise that Saddam Hussein might soon have nuclear weapons, which turned out, as we now know, to not be true. Kim Jong-il may have nuclear weapons now. Well, now we know he does have nuclear weapons. His son, Kim Jong-un, who could be even crazier than Kim Jong-il, certainly has nuclear weapons now. He just did another test last week. Kaplan said he certainly has enough plutonium to build some and the reactors to breed more. Yet Bush neither threatened war nor pursued diplomacy. Back in 2002, Essentially, he just allowed North Korea to get weapons of mass destruction. Kaplan goes on to say the pattern of decision that led to this debacle, as described to me in recent interviews with key former Bush administration officials who participated in the events, will sound familiar to anyone who has watched Bush and his cabinet in action. It is a pattern of wishful thinking, blinding moral outrage, willful ignorance of foreign cultures, a naive faith in American triumphalism, a contempt for the messy compromises of diplomacy, because, you know, only wusses use diplomacy and a knee-jerk refusal to do anything the way that the Clinton administration did. That's what this is about. Clinton administration was trying to work out diplomacy with North Korea, had succeeded in keeping those uh, radioactive rods locked up. Therefore, the Bush administration wanted nothing to do with it. Sound familiar? If Barack Obama is in favor of it, we're against it, no matter what it is. No matter if it will keep us out of war with Iran, we're against it. Why? Because Barack Obama is in favor of it. And every single one of the Republicans who are running today, says our friend Heather Digby Parton, would be even worse. She goes on to note that once Bush let this happen with no response, there wasn't a whole lot anyone could do. But don't look to the political media to explain this properly to the people if they go on as they have been. This morning, she wrote this the day after that latest uh, nuclear test in uh, North Korea. If they go on as they have this morning, it will be nonstop GOP blaming of Obama and Clinton for what's going on in North Korea. They don't seem to remember any of this very recent history. I think a lot of people don't.
So I think it's a good idea to remind everyone. Well, one thing I would add to his long list of what the Bush administration seemed to be suffering from, not just that naivete, not whatever the Clintons did will do the opposite, but also bald opportunism. We started the show talking about oil prices plunging. They were even lower back in 2000 and 2001 Mm -hmm. when Bush came into office. And uh, there are quite a few analysts who look at the Iraq war as a pretty bald attempt to boost oil prices. And it succeeded wildly. It worked until now. Until now that they are down to the lowest uh, uh, price that they have been since 2003, since before we went to war with Iraq instead of doing anything about a crazy guy getting nuclear weapons in North Korea. At a time when we were talking about how dangerous weapons of mass destruction are, but only in certain parts of the world. Apparently, we were just kidding. All right. Uh, thank you, Desi Doyen. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, Professor John Allen Paulos of Temple University. And as ever, my thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. As well, my thanks to those of you who help us stay on the air and do what we do by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate uh, to help us continue. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can find me and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. And if you ever miss any portion of any of our programs or want to point someone to it to help spread the word, they are all posted at bradblog.com with additional information as well as over at iTunes and elsewhere, where we hope you will give us a good review, make it a little easier for people to find us. All right, that's it. Until next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>